hello, and welcome to The Middle of Culture, Episode 2. I'm one of your hosts, Peter Jones. And I am your other usual co-host, Braden Jones. And today, we thought we'd talk about the movie Dune. Now, before we jump right in and start talking about it, Braden, I thought maybe it would be useful for us to talk a little bit about what is our history with Dune as a whole? Because it's one of those things that does have a bit of a storied history associated with it. So what's your history with Dune overall in any sort of situation? Sure. Um, I will admit I'm a bit of a Dune neophyte. I have never read the book. Um, any of the books, because when I was of the age when reading Dune would have been um, appealing to me for the first time, you know, like a like a late teen, maybe like a mid to late teen, uh, the sequel and prequel books were coming out, which were written by Kevin J. Anderson. And do you want to know who's one of the worst authors of sci-fi that I can think of off the top of my head? Please tell me. Kevin J. Anderson. <laughs> He's terrible. Every single, like you and I read a lot of those Star Wars books of in the original EU and those like, you know, from the Zahn trilogy of the Thrawn books on. We read a lot of those, you know, we would talk about them. With some shame, I will actually admit in public to having read every single expanded universe book up until the whole, what was it? The new Jedi order where they kind of tried to do sort of a soft reboot and I read a bunch of those, but I didn't ever finish those, but every single one before that I actually read. I mean, we read them together. We did. We did. Yeah. We, we, we read them together. Like we would buy them and then swap those paperbacks back and forth. Yep. And uh, so, you know, I, I will say the same thing. I read all of them. Courtship of, Prince, Courtship of Princess Leia, you bet. Uh, Crystal Star, terrible. Oh, the Corellia gosh. Trilogy, also pretty terrible. <laughs> like, uh, let's be honest. Most of the, most of Star Wars EU is bad. Yes. Um. I mean, lots of Star Wars is pretty mediocre when it's all said and done. Uh, but Kevin G. Anderson's books specifically are some of the very worst ones. Yes, they really um, are. He's the one who gave them a kid named Anakin. Why would they name their kid Anakin? Get out of town. For the very same reason that Harry Potter named his son Snape. And look, both of those kids can go in the garbage where <laughs> kids of main characters in books belong. Um, <laughs> I'm on board with that totally. Anyway. So, so, uh, I mean, everything J.K. Rowling ever wrote can go in the trash can, but that's a story for another day. Uh, I had never read any Dune books because Kevin J. Anderson was working on him, and I was like, well, his book sucks, so I don't want to get involved with this series that Kevin J. Anderson is in, star- is in charge of. Uh, and I have very vague memories of seeing the Lynch movie when I was a kid. Okay. But that is the extent of it. And like, it was always in the milieu. It was always in the like cultural ether around me. So I collected things about Dune. I knew what the Kwisatz Haderach was. I know what fear is the mind killer comes from, but it didn't mean anything to me because I'd never read or seen, read the book or really seen either the, uh, you know, the Lynch movie or the, the early 2000s sci-fi miniseries. So it was just like, Dune is a thing. It's one of those classic sci-fi things. Most of those I don't really vibe with. I had never really read it. What about you? So I think that that'll be interesting. And and I'm curious to see if the differences between our experiences with Dune will play out as we talk about the movie. Because I'm kind of the opposite. Uh, I would say, in my opinion, Dune is to science fiction what The Lord of the Rings is to modern fantasy. 
You know, you'll find overtones, things that are borrowing from Dune all over the place. And so for me, as a huge fan of science fiction, when the 1984 David Lynch Dune came out, I watched that thing so many stinking times, I don't even remember. I used to watch it all the time when I was over at our aunt and uncle's house during the summer when mom was working, you know, and and I did. I've lost track of how many times I watched that movie. And subsequently, you know, I totally watched the uh, the science fi or the sci-fi channel uh, miniseries that they released. Not great, but I even have watched. I mean, it was a TV show miniseries. Of course, it's going to be bad. I've even seen, uh, I think on more than one occasion, the version of Dune that the studio put out that added in a lot of extra things that David Lynch had cut to the point that he demanded they remove his name from the movie. Oh, man. And so if you watch that version, it's directed by Alan Smithy. And that's become a thing now in Hollywood where if a director doesn't want their name attached to a property, then it will say that it was directed by Alan Smithy. So I've seen that version. Yeah. That I was just going to say Alan Smithy was a name they invented in the 1920s for a writer or producer or uh, director who refused to have their name on the final product. So I think that's really interesting that they put out. Perfect. See, I didn't even realize it was that old. Oh yeah, it's a it is an old hat. If you see Alan Smithy in a thing, you're like, oh yeah, that's a that's, that's someone who didn't want to be associated with this work they made. Yeah, so that's how it was with the version that the studio released. I've subsequently read Dune. I've read the original book Dune multiple times. I have read all of the books written by Frank Herbert, and then because I do have a special degree of self loathing. I went ahead and I tried to read some of the Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson ones. Buddy. I read the Butlerian Jihad. And I think I tried one of the, one of the house ones, whether it was house Harkonnen, house Atreides or something like that. And I finally just gave up. I couldn't get through them. But despite that, I love Dune. And it's always been one of those things that I think about. I mean, heck, I've even watched most of the documentary, the uh, Joe Dorowski's Dune. I don't know if you've heard about that. Oh yeah, I am a I'm a very big Jodorowsky fan. Uh, I think that In Call is one of those like seminal texts in comics. Uh, so I know Mobius and, and Jodorowsky's work, which they made after mm-hmm. Dune failed. Um, so I know it. You know, I I know that Dune happened, and I know that there are these you know extant, very large books that exist. They're like a few dozen copies of of the storyboarding and the concepting and all the sort of things that they were developing to make that dune yeah and then they made that uh that documentary about it yeah so like i say i i have a, a long relationship with dune and given that was it was with a significant amount of trepidation that i went in to watch this version i stayed away from the trailers because i didn't want to really see anything And I didn't even know, honestly, if I was going to watch it until a friend called me up and said, hey, do you want to go see Dune? And I said, "Um, it's on HBO Max. Come over to my place. We'll watch it that way. (laughs) So what were some of your initial thoughts? What's kind of your big picture? And and again, we don't know anything about how each other thinks. So I'm curious to hear what you think about Dune. So uh, my expectations were kind of low going in only because... uh, I think Denis Villeneuve 
has a very striking visual style, but most of his movies are not very good. Okay. Um, I think Sicario sucks, even though I know there are a lot of people who think Sicario is very good. I think it sucks. Um, I thought Blade Runner 2049 was a great looking waste of talent and time. Um, Arrival, however, was really good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Arrival because it was less of an action spectacle, which is what you get in Sicario, which is, you know, like drug smuggling movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like, I mean, you know, cops fighting drug smugglers, whatever. And Blade Runner 2049, which had a lot more action in it than I expected it to have. Uh, I expected it to be a little more pensive and a little more uh, thoughtful after having seen Arrival, which is almost entirely that that uh, feeling of of discovery, that feeling of, of being unfamiliar in your environment and trying to find purchase in that environment. Okay. Um, and then, and coming ultimately, have you ever seen Arrival? So I was going to mention, I am familiar with the director by name, but I don't know that I've actually seen start to finish anything that he has done. Okay. You got to go watch Arrival. That's, that's what I'll say. I bought it on iTunes. I have it sitting in my Plex server. I just have never gotten around to watching it. You should watch it. Amy Adams is great in almost everything she's in, and Jeremy Renner is there. But the <laughs> uh, the special effects are really good. I thought the story was really good. I was really affected by it. Um, he does. I know this is a thing we're going to talk about later. It, the uh, scoring for that film is really effective mm-hmm. um, and, and really emotive in a way that I was not necessarily thinking it was going to be. Um, but I was really impressed with it. Uh, so I was, you know, excited to see Blade Runner 2049 because Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies. And then I went and saw it and I was like, this is such a good cast, but such a boring movie. <laughs> um, it's not very good. If you like Blade Runner, you should watch 2049 so that you can be like, I'm sorry to say, but Ridley Scott did it better. Um, but so I like was like, OK, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Dune, whatever. So, so based on that, based on what you said about why you liked Arrival, uh, I'm, I'm really curious about the reveal here about what you thought. You dog, I thought this movie was pretty good. Okay. I am surprised how much I enjoyed this. Like I said, my expectations were low, not having, having not read Dune, having heard from friends who were like, "Ah, I thought it was just okay. Uh, I was really impressed by it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and maybe it was because I went in with lower expectations, so it had more space to impress me. Um, but I feel like it captured a lot of the things that I like about Arrival. That feeling of being in an alien space, that feeling of finding oneself and trying to uh, to you know navigate these unfamiliar territories and find a way to communicate uh, with this unknown that is before me um and granted it's a little more grounded here because it is people and it is a conflict between you know groups of humans as messed up as they may be in the case of house harkonnen because apparently they're all like weird mutant people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that the deal with harkonnen I, i gotta be honest that part i don't remember but yes they are all very weird they're all like weird mutant like they have no pigment they have no hair they're all just weird like people and but still they're all people it's not like oh these are septipod aliens who communicate through 
ink blots on the window, which is what you get in Arrival. Yeah. But it's still that case of like the 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 conflict between groups of people and the con- and, you know you bring the Fremen in and you've got the House of Trades people, um, and I thought it was really impressive. It, I thought it was wonderful to look at. Um, I was worried um, when I saw the trailers that I was going to be subjected to another teal and orange mess of a movie because that's all anyone makes anymore. <laughs> the vast majority of big budget cinema has the same color palette as Transformers. Yeah. And that is as derisive as I mean it to sound <laughs> because most movies look bad. They And that's one thing that the Lynch movie has going for it is it's bright and it's weird. It is very weird. It, it, but the design has that that weirdness to it that I feel like has been filed off in a lot of cinema since the mid-1990s. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of really great movies that came out in the 90s, but a lot of things that tried to borrow those traditions did it very poorly. Um, and so I was worried seeing the trailers and seeing lots of sand, which was often shot in these orangey tones. I was worried I was just going to get another blue and or another teal and orange slog. But I think that they did it a disservice with those uh, those trailers because the movie had a lot more color to it and subtlety to it than that blaring Michael Bay Technicolor style. Yes, I agree with that. So obviously, uh, this was your idea to watch it. So I'm pretty sure you also enjoyed this movie. I did. I loved this movie. And in watching it now uh, multiple times, because I've seen it a few different times, some of that initial uh, surge of love that I felt for it the first time I watched it has been worn off just a little bit. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's gone away and it's really kind of turned more into a respect for it and an appreciation of the way I feel it respects the source material, but also respects the medium of a movie. Does that make sense? Yes. This was a movie. I, the best way I can think to describe it is this was a movie ass movie. Yes. This was not like sometimes you watch a movie and I think that this is definitely the case with, I mean, when I think of the big tentpole movies of the last few years, I think of the Marvel cinematic universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially in Marvel's case, because they have so many of these miniseries coming out that can range from, you know, five to seven, eight hours each that their movies also get that feel to them. They're like, this is just an installment in a large miniseries and not a movie ass movie but dune felt like a movie like it had even though it was part one which i thought it was very gutsy of them to put on the opening titles since the movie had not been greenlit when this movie came out yeah absolutely for them to be like no dog this is part one and then of course to end it the way that it ended it yeah uh you know with that that final closing line that uh zendaya's character delivers being like yeah, you knew you were making a half and you were saying to the studio and to the audience, this is only half, so y'all better come back so we can make a second half. Yeah, and I'm very excited that's happening, and I'm also a little sad that it's not going to be here until sometime in 2023. I mean, that's the that's the sad part about them only letting him film the one at a time. You know, we're yeah. not getting that great Lord of the Rings or Matrix sequel situation where it's like, 
not only are you getting one, but you're getting two or three of these suckers in a very condensed time span because we filmed them back to back. Yep. But no, I did. I loved it. Um, it is different than the David Lynch version, thank goodness, in a lot of ways. And you can also see, I think, some areas where it pulled from that, and it did take some inspiration. I appreciated that it didn't try and ignore that that movie ever existed, that it knows there is a certain percentage of people who are going to go see this who have seen the David Lynch version perhaps many times like I have. And they didn't, they didn't try and ignore that. They didn't try and bury that. And so I appreciated that it felt respectful to the legacy of Dune and recognizing that this is a property that has a bit of a storied legacy, not only with all the different times they have tried to adapt it, but also the fact that I'll just be totally honest. If all you ever read is the book Dune, you'd be okay. The rest of the books by Frank Herbert <laughs> aren't great, and they get worse the further they go on. It's a bizarre, convoluted story and really starts to kind of crawl up its own ass. And so, you know, you read the first one, you can maybe read the second and the third, and then after that, it just goes off the rails. And so even then, before you get to the just terrible ones by, by Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert, it's not a great series in and of itself. So there's a lot of baggage going along with it. And I thought they did a really good job of taking this and saying, here's our inspiration. But like you said, we are going to make a movie. This is not, we're trying to take the book and make it a movie. We're taking the story, but we're going to make a movie. And I think that's one of the reasons it works so well for me. So I have a quick question for you then. Yeah. Um, because I'm not as familiar with the Lynch film, in what ways do you see that it paid homage or or uh, gave you that wink and nod as a as a fan of the earlier text? So there are definitely some visual cues, especially there on Arrakis. These, you know, you see Arakeen, which is the city, and it's this big sweeping vista of these. It's really brutalist architecture. And there I was, thought it was dope. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I thought it looked super cool. And there was some of that, that while not didn't look nearly as good in the David Lynch film, there were still some scenes like that. And some of the interactions between some of the characters like Gurney and, and Paul and, and things like that, where you could tell they were taking from the book, but they also were finding some inspiration in the in that initial 1984 version and so just kind of the look of some of the things and and again some of the character interactions harken back to that version enough that it did feel like it was a, a bit of an homage to that cool uh, you know the other thing like you said i did think it was in its own way a beautiful movie like it's it's fun to watch because of because of the spectacle of it, and again, that architecture that I find fascinating, one of the things I sat there and I, I wrote down as I was watching it this last time, I will watch crazy looking spaceships take off and land all day long. Give me a whole movie of that. I'm cool. Same. Great big spaceship coming up out of the water and the water falling off it. Hell yeah. I'm there. Let's just keep watching that. Give me more of that. The weird... Oh, it was... They were so cool. Like the ornithopters, that is the dumbest design that one could ever come up with for it. Like there's, this is stupid. There's no way this would, they would ever actually design a ship to work like this. Exactly. But guess what? 
It was cool looking. It looks. It was cool. really freaking cool looking. Yeah, and you know, just so many things like that that I enjoyed. That it it really it won me over, and it kind of paid off all those things that I've been hoping to see in an adaptation of Dune. Actually, far better than I expected to get. So I was really happy with it. Yeah, like you said, um, I love the design of the ships and of the technology. It felt coherent um, and, and like and, and distinctive. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of times when you have a lot of ships like that, they get really samey. Yes. Um, and the best. The, the best sci-fi, intergalactic sci-fi, doesn't. That's one of the things that makes Star Wars so distinctive, is that every single one of those ships just looks weird as hell when you put it next to the other ships. Yep. You put an X-Wing next to a Y-Wing, and you're like, why are either of these shaped like this? Because they look cool. They don't <laughs> this doesn't have to make sense. And a B-Wing. Why did the Bene Gesserit... Like really, a B-Wing. Yeah, why did... Why does yeah? Why does the Bene Gesserit woman come down like the priestess come down in like a weird orb ship? Cause she's like a weird priest, so of course she has like a weird orb ship. But the Atreides house doesn't have weird orb ships, cause that's not that's not the visual style that the house has in their armor, in their dress clothes, in their homes, and so like even down to the visual styling of the different houses, and you know the difference between. Here's what a dropship from Atreides looks like. Here's what a dropship from Harkonnen looks like. Here's what the Sardaukar dropships look like, which is a totally different thing. Yep. And again, their armor's all looking different. And just adding that feel of it being like, this was a thought out world. And it wasn't like, how can we reuse these assets as um, uh, as carefully as possible? It was more like, how can we expand on these assets and make sure that each of these groups, when you see a shot, even from far away, you can you can parse that action. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of times, again, talking about modern cinema, special effects have gotten better, but they've also gotten really lazy. Yes. I really like the story of many of the Marvel movies. I can't tell you a single Marvel movie where I was like, this action scene was really impressive with like one exception, which is Chris Evans has baller arms when he stops a helicopter from taking off. And it ain't the helicopter I care about. It's Chris Evans, huge arms that I want to give me a hug. Like, so have you seen Shang-Chi yet then? Okay. So Shang-Chi is the one exception because it made it look like a Wuxia movie. And it was (laughs) like, I just wanted to say that, there's some really okay, cool fight choreography cool. in Shang-Chi. But again, that's not special effects. That's, that's fight true. choreography. That's true. You're correct. As soon as the special effects came, as soon as a dragon appears, you're like, that's a good enough looking dragon, but do you know what looked better? The dinosaurs in 1993's Jurassic Park. Because that's the pinnacle of sci-fi special effects, apparently. is a movie from 30 freaking years ago. And everything since has been kind of lazy looking. Not everything. Many things since have been kind of lazy looking. But Dune did not feel that way to me. I didn't look at any of that CG and be like, that's dodgy. Which is how I feel in most of the Marvel movies. It's like, oh, this is not good. I know they hired Lucasfilm. I know that Industrial Light and Magic can make a good action scene. I don't know why they're not doing it. Yeah. But I felt like in Dune there was a... Even though I know these are all just like pretend ships, they had a physicality to them. Yeah. Well, I think that it helped that you could see in a lot of places where it was a practical effect. You know, when Duncan Idaho lands on his ornithopter for the first time and, you know, he goes and meets Paul and he's t- and Paul's like, let me go with you. And he's like, 
dog, no, like you can't go with me. Like he is fiddling with an actual thing in space. And you can tell that he is opening actual panels on an actual piece of probably, you know, fiberglass or styrofoam on a soundstage, but it's things. Yes. He is interacting. Fi- like Jason Momoa is physically touching things with his human hands and fiddling and touching them. And there is a, there's a physicality and a presence to it that even transfers over, I think, to too many of the effects shots, uh, which, uh, you know, is impressive because I don't feel that's the case a lot of times. Yeah. And one of the things that I think, I really enjoyed about this movie as well is that that same sort of concept really bled over into so many different things. Think about the battle between the Harkonnen and the Atreides and the Sardaukar, even though they're busy battles, they did a good job of, you could tell who was who and you, I felt like you could follow the action far better than you can again in a lot of modern movies. You know, Michael Bay, I think, is probably the worst offender of this. Exactly. You try and watch a Transformers movie, which, while you're doing that, there's lots of reasons I don't understand why you're doing that. But, you know, you should be able to say, Transformers, give me big robots, punching big robots. That sounds awesome. That's all I need. And even then, it's so busy and so convoluted that you just can't enjoy that aspect of it. Yep. And I didn't feel in kind of the sparse action scenes because there isn't a lot of action in this movie, but in those scenes with the battles and things, you really could tell who was who because they did make them look different. Yep. Even down to one of the visions Paul has when the Fremen are attacking the Sardaukar, their fighting style is different and you can tell who is whom because they move different and they're fighting differently. And I thought that it was really well done the way those differences were passed along visually so that as you're watching the movie, you don't feel confused. Wait, now who's that? Who's fighting? What? Why? Wait, you, you can watch the action and it's still busy and it's still frenetic, but I felt like it was clear enough to see who is who and what's going on here. And you just don't see that very often in modern movies. Agreed. I thought that it was, again, it was, it's part of that being a movie ass movie is like, it doesn't look cheap and dodgy. It doesn't look like this is a thing that was made on the cheap, even though the budget for this movie is only $165 million, yeah. which is lower than like most of your big budget tentpole movies, but it looked better than it them. It really did. And I don't know if that is, and again, even the Villeneuve movies I don't like, Blade Runner 2049 ain't good, but it looks great. Yeah. Like it looks, it has that feel of physicality and presence um, in the same way that this movie did. So maybe that's just him. Maybe that is a talent that he has and the team that he, and to be fair, it's not just him, the teams of cinematographers and people that he puts together um, uh, to create that, that, that feeling of this being a real thing lived in by actual people. Yeah. No, those are really good points. So again, before we get into any specifics about the plot, because we're going to talk about things and if people don't want to be spoiled, well, the movie's been out for a while. I don't think it's our problem, but Hey, we can spoiler alert the end. We will. We'll, we'll spoiler in just a little bit, but there's a couple of things I do want to talk about first. And the first, the next thing I want to talk about is the cast, the cast for this movie. I thought this cast was amazing. The first time my friend and I were watching it, we kept turning to each other. We're like, Oh my gosh, 
This person's in it too. Wait a second. This person's in it. Wait, that's Stalin Scarlet. No, that's Javier Bardem. I mean, just over and over and over again, people who I was just impressed that they were able to get. And I thought they did a great job. I thought they were good performances. Um, what were your thoughts on the cast? I agree. Um, I feel like by and large, this cast was very well suited for the roles that they had. Um, I, I will say that I wish I liked Rebecca Ferguson more uh-huh. um, in the film. I think that they cast her to be really emotive and she's very good at being very emotive, but that didn't necessarily convey the interiority that I think that some of the other actors were able to portray. I still thought she was good. I don't think she was bad, but a lot of the other actors were great. Oscar Isaac was all is always almost always good. And he was really good in this. Like you could feel the weight of house Atreides on Leto's shoulders, uh, in the scenes that he was in. And I think that a lot of that comes down. You can see that he knows they've been set up. He knows. Oh yeah. And, and he, from the very beginning. Yep. And he, and he plays it with that, like stoicism and resignation. And you can see that he is seething underneath, but that because he is the leader of a noble house, he can't do anything about it. Yeah. And you know, you've got Jason Momoa being a good Jason Momoa character. Yep. And like you give him a good role like that and he digs in and he does good work. Um, you know, I really liked, uh, uh, and Chalamet, I'm not a huge fan of him, but I thought that he was perfectly cast as Paul because he looks so much younger than he is. Yes. Unlike many teen actors who look older than they are or early 20 something actors who look young, older than they are. Guy does not look 26. He is 26. Wow. He does not look like a 26 year old. He looks like a 17 year old. Yeah. I never would have guessed that. I've never seen him in anything, was not familiar with him before. So, you know, I didn't have any expectations and I really enjoyed him. Um, you know, I think there are stronger actors in the movie, but I thought for what he needed to do and what he brings to this role, I thought he did a really good job. You know, so much of this movie is about Paul's journey and who does he become? Mm -hmm. And I thought we could see that nicely in there from the beginning of the movie to the end he has changed. And I thought that Chalamet uh, portrayed that nicely. Yeah. You definitely get that feeling of growth from, you know, spoiled rich kid who, who knows that he has a duty and has responsibilities. I'm not saying that he doesn't like that. He's like, you know, a freewheeling or anything, but like he is a sheltered, spoiled child of a Duke. But due to the things that happen over the course of this movie, you see him grow and come into his own, uh, in really powerful ways that I'm very excited to see how they're developed, uh, in the second installment. Um, and you know, I, I know that famously Zendaya was apparently on set for like a day or two, (laughs) but what little you see, and, and you don't see her a lot in this movie. I won't lie. Her being in this movie was largely slow-mo shots that were a preview of coming attractions. And I think that it was a marketing pull because Zendaya seems like she's she's pretty, you know, she's pretty hot right now. She's pretty popular. And I thought it was very big, very talented, good way to use her in this movie and give her a little bit more than she would than she should have had based on the story. For sure. Uh, and, And I thought she was cast really well. Um 
Yeah, I thought it was a really good cast all around. I was really impressed with him. So let's talk for a minute about Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Stalin Skarsgård. Can I just say he freaking terrifies me? Yeah, he does a good job of being scary. Um, I'm not huge into the fat phobia that is inherent in a character like that, but I thought that he was a menacing character um, and did a good job of conveying that menace uh, powerfully in the very few scenes he was in. He's not in very many. Yes. He's not in the movie much because there's, again, there's a lot of movie and there's not a lot of time to be with him. Yeah. Um, but every scene that he's in, he, he oozes authority and menace. And just as creepy as can be. I mean, just so creepy. Oh yeah. And I, I liked that. And I agree with you on kind of the, the fat phobia sort of thing. It's obviously part of the story. It's one of the things that, that sure. um, Frank Herbert wrote. And I felt that it was adapted much more appropriately and and menacingly in this movie than it certainly was in, in the previous iterations that I've seen. And so I think that's one of the reasons it sort of stuck out to me. I mean, he's just creepy, you know. And I will... I, I will say one funny thing that I read when this movie was coming out. I read a few articles about it. Apparently, he just loved being in the suit <laughs> and would just like like run around set, like pulling pranks on people and just like prancing around in the suit, which I think is really funny. That footage but, uh, has to be there somewhere. Really loved it. We need that. We need that in our lives I, in 2022. Give me the Harkonnen cut. <laughs> don't actually don't actually put it in the film put it in the special features on the blu-ray but yes. uh anyway i i just think that's so funny that he loved being in the fat suit so much that he was like prancing around the set playing tricks on people that is kind of hilarious well so let's also talk about the soundtrack a little bit and then i think we'll get into more specifics about the movie so this is sure. scored by hans zimmer who you know is one of those kind of you know big big names in composing movie soundtracks. And there's some of his stuff that he's done that I love. I love inception. There are some other things that he's done that I'm not as big a fan of. In fact, I want to say that Hans Zimmer might have done scoring for the amazing Spider-Man or maybe the second one, or maybe both of them. I think so. Possible. I think he did. And I think he did like, some scoring for either one or both of those movies and, and had like a bunch of other people helping like hip hop artists and stuff like that. So they're really not good. But what did you think about the soundtrack for Dune? Um, I felt like it was appropriate. I never felt like sometimes I, I am not as big of a fan of Zimmer's style, his, especially his Nolan, uh, work because it's, I, I blame him for the that every single uh, trailer has now. Even if the film itself doesn't have it, every trailer has a a slow, terrible um, cover of a 70s or 80s rock song. And two, a (laughs) from the Zimmer uh, Zimmer soundtracks. That's true. I'll give you that for sure. I'm not into it. I I respect that he does what he does, but I'm not. That's not my style. but I felt like it was appropriate. That's the best way that I could describe his work on this film. It did not feel out of place. It never like blah at me the same way uh, that I was afraid that it would. Um, and I felt like it was it was it was good for the film. It fit the film. That's how I'll say it. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about this, and because I enjoyed the movie so much the first time I watched it, I did go and listen to the soundtrack. 
It's a terrible soundtrack to listen to unless you're busy doing something else. So like you said, it is it is not something that you're going to sit down, you're going to put headphones on, and you're going to lean back and you're going to listen to because they're not really songs. They're almost more kind of soundscapes to go along with the movie. And so in that aspect, I think that it was perfect for the movie because so much of what is happening in the course of this movie is just a slow build on tension. I mean, this movie from the beginning to the very end, I felt is just increasing the tension a little bit more yeah. and a little bit more. And the soundtrack does that nicely. It complements that. Again, it's definitely not one of my favorites, but I thought that the way it creates the setting adds some tension, some disquiet was what made it so effective for me is because it taken alone. It's not one to listen to, but in the setting of these scenes and the visuals that you're watching, I thought it really helped them and strengthened them for me. I thoroughly agree. Um, yeah, I do. It was not one that I thought this is not a, uh, what's his name? Who did the Lord of the Rings soundtracks? Howard Shore. Sure. This is not a Howard Short thing. This is not a thing I'm going to put on in the background of my life because, I mean, part of it is because of that building tension. I don't want music that uh, builds slow tension like that because then it's just going to make me feel antsy. And I don't need that. If I want that, I'll just go drink an extra cup of coffee. <laughs> um, but uh, I did think, like you said, I think that it worked in the film very well. Um, I will say I didn't like his score to Blade Runner at all uh, because I want Blade Runner to sound like Vangelis because that's who did the soundtrack to the 82 Blade Runner movie. Right. I want it to be weird, synthy, ethereal music. And he did a little bit of that, but there was still a lot of blaring horns in his mm. Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack. And so it didn't really work for me. So I was like, I don't know if he's going to do good work here. Um, but I think that he did... Uh, like you said, I think he did a really good job of amping up the pressure and building on the scenes that were created by the film team uh, to to add that tension and that feel of foreboding. As you can tell, something is about to pop off. And then when things do pop off, uh, I think it hits really hard and hits really well. Yeah. Um, it also made me think, again, just watching this the other night, we could have more bagpipes in soundtracks. I'd be okay with that. The two times that they used bound pipes, I was like, yes, yes, those bagpipes are hitting. They're just, they're really hitting. But, you know. Agreed. All right. Well, I think at this point we're going to go ahead and start getting into some spoilers. So we'll ring the little spoiler bell or spoiler horn or whatever sound effect I decide to put in here at some point when I'm editing <laughs> it. I'll find something to stick in here. There um, you go. I like it. But. You know, briefly, the plot, I would say, as we mentioned, it, this is all about Paul. And this is about Paul's journey. And it gets really goofy. And there's a lot of stuff that kind of is up its own butt. But, you know, the idea of the Kwisatzatarak, that, you know, it's all these weird things. And and the story, though, really, that I enjoyed. And, and I think Frank Herbert did this on purpose. This is a science fiction story, but there's no computers. There's no robots. Mm -hmm. They fight with swords. 
Yes, they have bombs and spaceships and faster than light travel and all this stuff, but this is a human story. And I think that that's what Frank Herbert was going for when he wrote this, is he wanted to explore more human things, but in this setting of a science fiction world. And so we've got Dune, this planet that is the only source in the galaxy of the spice and the spice enhances your abilities and makes it so that the guild navigators can do the mental calculations necessary for faster than light travel because we don't have any computers to do it. And none of that really is explained why that's the case. And this falls into some things that I think were actually wisely left out. We don't need to talk about the Butlerian Jihad. We don't need to talk about the Orange Catholic Bible and, you know, the commandment of thou shalt not make a machine in the image of a man, things like that. But we've got these two houses and House Harkonnen is being removed from being the, um, what's the term I'm thinking of? Anyway, they're being removed from being... Steward. Yes, the steward. Thank you. They're being removed from being the stewards of Arrakis and House Atreides is given control of this. And the spice made House Harkonnen obscenely wealthy over the years. And so there's a possibility that it could do that for the Atreides. But again, as we mentioned, Duke Leto, he knows that this is a setup from the beginning. And so short story, they go to Dune, the Harkonnens with the help of the emperor come wipe out the house. There's some traitor on the inside who helps out. And Paul and his mother, um, Jessica, escape to the desert. And the movie ends with them joining the Fremen. And we'll see what happens next. But I love... I mean, the movie does end with the line, this is only the beginning. And I was <laughs> like, you mother effers, you genuinely ended your two and a half hour movie with Zendaya saying the line, this is only the beginning. Like you said, and I got to wait till October move. 2023. Yeah. Yeah, it was really ballsy. So... um. Some of the things that, again, as we start to get into more of the specifics that I really enjoyed about this movie, I liked some of the the specific scenes that struck out. I'm just going to go to the Gamjabar. Okay, the Gamjabar is one of those classic scenes, both from the book, from the David Lynch movie, and from this one. And we've got Paul brought in before the Reverend Mother. I'm not going to try and pronounce her name because I'll mess it up and somebody will yell at me. But she's brought before the, he's brought before the Reverend Mother to be tested with this idea that she wants to find out, is he a human or is he an animal? And so she puts his hand in the box. And in the old version, Paul sits there with his hand in the box and you get this visual of the skin on the back of his hand, like burning and crinkling and then peeling and all this stuff. And I actually really like that you don't see anything in this. You just see Paul's face. He's got his hand in the Gamjabar and she's got the needle next to his neck or rather his hands in the box. And she's got the Gamjabar next to his neck, ready to stab him. If he tries to pull it out and he'll die instantly. His mother, because she's a Bene Gesserit, she knows this and she's standing outside the door. And the Reverend mother specifically says, you know, nobody's going to get in here and stop this from happening because your mom's out in the hall and she can stop them all. And I loved how it starts out and you see Paul's face and he's feeling the pain and he is really like, it's supposedly pretty intense pain. He begins to mouth. And he sells it. Yeah. Oh, he totally does. 
he begins to mouth the words to the litany of fear. And outside in the hall, his mother, Jessica, is saying this out loud. And I thought that was a really effective way to convey this scene because, again, in the David Lynch version, it's just going through Paul's head. And he's sort of saying it to himself. And there's a lot of voiceover. And this is one of the voiceovers where he's going through the litany of fear in his head. But I thought it was really effective to have him sort of mouthing the words, but you don't hear him saying it, but you hear his mother outside saying it because she is sure she's going to walk in and her son's going to be dead. Uh huh. And about halfway through this, once his mom starts going through the litany of fear and once he starts going through it, there's this really subtle change in in his face. And it's one of, I think, the most powerful moments in the movie because all of a sudden Paul goes from being scared and being in pain to being really pissed off that she is doing this to him. And you can see him just change and go defiant. I will beat this and I will beat you. Yup. Yeah. That switch on the dime from this hurts, this hurts to that defiance of being like, I don't care how much this hurts. And in the end of it, I think, and I can't remember if it describes this in the book, but you know, she finally says enough because I think you're supposed to understand that he's withstood this longer than anybody she's ever tested before. And well, she says that in the film. Yeah. I couldn't remember if she said that or not. Um, she, yeah. She said in the film that no one had ever withstood that much pain uh, from the box before. That's right. That's right. But like I say, the, that change in him, when you can just see in his face, and I love that there's nothing else that said, there's no big change. The music is still going on. His mother's still reciting the litany against fear. But you see this subtle change in his face where now he's like, no, I will best this. You will not beat me. And I thought that that was a yeah. really, really, that's still watching it again, probably one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. It was really powerful. What are some other, are there other specific scenes that stick out to you that you thought were um, interesting, affecting, powerful, anything like that that you, you wanted to mention? Um, yeah, uh, I thought that, uh, again, he played Paul really thoughtfully that scene. It, this is an inconsequential scene ultimately, but I thought that it was really effective when he's out in the courtyard and it's like high heat. And so all of the rest of the Atreides people are in the, in the buildings so that they're not going to be hurt or anything. And you see this one caretaker out, uh, watering the palm trees that have been implanted and imported to this planet and him being like inquisitive enough to be like what are you doing and then being like well should we like if these take as much water as a hundred men shouldn't we preserve that water for the people and then the other person being like, no, because this is important because of what they symbolize. And him weighing that all in his head and seeing that, like, again, it's a simple scene, but it, I think, sets up a lot of the choices that he makes. And I think, more importantly, knowing what little skeletal understanding of the second half of this uh, book has in store for us in this film, uh, that weighing the, the, the responsibility of power as seen in the film and in the book of how do I make these choices of who lives, who dies, what matters, what doesn't. Um, and how do I, as a young man who is 
re- coming into my own uh, and eventually by the end of this becomes the Duke of House Atreides, even if unofficially because, you know, everyone thinks he's dead. He is still technically the Duke of House Atreides mm-hmm. uh, coming into his own and and having that weight that his father had carried, like we talked about, Oscar Isaac, showing so physically in his performance. You start to see that slowly come on to Paul. Um, and it really, uh, I think... And obviously this is the climax of the film, so of course that's where it climaxes, when he accepts the challenge from that Fremen who, you know, feels that the leader, Javier Bardem's character, has been bested by Jessica, Mm -hmm. and therefore he challenges Jessica to a fight, and Paul steps in and, and, uh, again, starts weighing those things where he, in that fight, overpowers and brings to the brink of, of killing the Fremen uh, man who is uh, who he's dueling with, but not following through until he realizes the only way I get out of this and that my mother gets out of this is if I take this person's life. And so the, these are the equations that I have been slowly prepared over the course of this film to make. And so he makes that choice yeah. as difficult as it is for him to make. He makes that choice and is therefore uh, you know, accepted into the Fremen. And that is where our film ends with him uh, essentially being, you know, realizing that in, in order for me to fulfill this destiny, to, to follow through with these visions that I've had, I will have to make hard choices like this and I will have to take lives as necessary. Yeah. And I mean, it straight up says, you know, at that end and it's been building to it, but you know, it says this idea that Paul must die so that Muad'Dib can rise, or the Lisan al-Gaib can rise. And he has that understanding. He doesn't want to do this, but if this is the destiny that's before him, he chooses to make that step to embrace that destiny. And I think he conveys it quite well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Again, I was really impressed with Chalamet's performance here. He, he seethes in all the right ways that a late teen, early 20 something stuck in these situations should. Yeah. And going back to that scene that you mentioned, I think it's also interesting for him to understand the importance of symbols because he sees those palm trees and the man says, no, these are sacred. This is a symbol to the people here. And I think that that helps him start to understand here they are. The Bene Gesserit have come before they've implanted these ideas that he may be the Lisan al-Gaib and And so they're looking for it. And I think this is just one of those other things that helps him understand the importance of a symbol and that he is a symbol or has the potential to be a symbol to these Fremen, to these people who are native to Arrakis. And it helps him make that decision to embrace that. Yeah. And in the big action sequence in, you know, two thirds of the way through the film, what happens to those trees? Yeah. They're on fire. They're, they're burnt. They're on fire. And so that that ties into that symbolism of like, you know, there's a lot of obviously the second book is called Dune Messiah. So there's going to be a lot of messianic, uh, you know, overtones. That's what Paul is. That's what his character is supposed to become is this messianic character to the Fremen. And and so it uses a lot of those, uh, the, you know, the refiner's fire or, uh, or, you know, and those like oblique biblical images that are part of the, you know, popular imaginary really effectively. Yeah. Interestingly, and, and again, mini spoiler here, 
Dune Messiah is so much about Paul rejecting that. And interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's him being completely disgusted by having become that now and actually running away from it to some degree. So it's, it's an interesting book. I think that, you know, one of the other scenes or one of the, not so much scenes, one of the other things that I still don't know that I fully understand the motivations of the character. And that is the betrayal by Dr. Yue. Sure. He knows who he's dealing with, with the Baron. Is he really so naive to think that the Baron was going to live up to his part of the bargain? I understand, you know, the Baron had his wife and has been torturing her and he just wants her freedom and his, but I'm like, dude, just look at the guy. Do you think he's actually going to do what he said he was going to do? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That was one of those things where you're like, that ain't how this works, buddy. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. The, one of the tricky things about Dune is the idea of prescience and the David Lynch movies movie did a really bad job of this. Mostly it would be these internal monologues, you know, voiced over by, by Paul. And I liked the way that they pulled in. It was these dreams or also, you know, that vision he has when the spice harvester, they go out, they're observing it. They see a sandworm coming. They call the, uh, the I can't even remember the term now, but the spaceship, the ship's going to come attached to the spice harvester, pick it up and get it to safety from this, from the worm. And it comes there. It's got four tethers that shoot out to grab the top of this thing. One of the tethers doesn't work. And so they can't pick it up. And Duke, uh, you know, Leto says how many people are on there. And there's like 21 or something. They've got three ornithopters. Yeah. They figure out that especially if they dump some of the shield generators that they don't need in this situation, they can get everybody in. And so they land and Paul and Gurney leave their, um, their ornithopter and they run out. And in the middle of this, of course, they're in a spice field. And so all this spice is getting kicked up and Paul starts to inhale this and has this waking vision. And I thought that these were much better ways to portray this prescience that he has that is starting to develop again than happened in in the older movie. And, and honestly, it worked better for me, I think, than in the book too because of the way they were able to kind of give you these glimpses of what he is seeing and what future he is envisioning. And I, I thought that that worked better than I expected it to. Um, what did you think about kind of the visions, the dreams, that sort of thing? Because it's such a big aspect of Dune and, and Paul. Um, I thought that it, there are certain things that can be done far more better in a visual medium than can be done in a written medium. Like books are at their best, at least for me. I I've read a lot of books with a lot of action sequences that are very, very bad because that is not a thing that I think most writers are very good at. Books are about interiority. That is where books shine is the interiority of a person, the, the, those, uh, interior monologues or the conversations and the dialogues that happen between people. But that means that if you're going to adapt that book, to a to a visual medium, you know, film in this instance, then you need to grapple with how do I portray these things in the distinct 
different medium that is film, which has different languages, different modalities, and different ways in which you could uh, you could share those things. And you know, voiceovers is one option. Yeah. It's not a very good option because <laughs> then it just feels like, well, okay, you're just reading me the third person narration from the book. Okay, that's. You're not engaging with film as a in a filmic nature. You're engaging it in a narrative nature that is too similar to to prose rather than working with the things that you can do in film that you can't do in in uh, prose. And so I think that changing those to visions is really powerful because they were presented in a way that if it was a book, you'd be like, "Oh great, Paul saw Zendaya's character in slow motion again." Ye freaking ha! <laughs> like that would be bad. That would make for a bad book, but it made for a visually arresting piece of cinema because you were able to have that feeling of disorientation, that feeling of of confusion, that feeling of of wanting answers to what this vision might mean and what it might portend for the future. Uh, so I thought it was a really effective way to to deal with that that prescience, as you said. Yeah, there are a few changes to at least the movies and some aspects of the book that I'll be interested to see how they address in the second part. You know, so far we've met the Baron and we've met Robin, who's played by Dave Bautista and doesn't have much to do, plays it fine, stands there, looks menacing. Also just, yeah, not not in the movie enough. Not in the movie enough. I hope he's in the second one more. Should be. Because that becomes a bigger a bigger aspect of the movie in the second is a direct conflict between what's left of House Atreides and House Harkonnen. So you've got Robin, played by Dave Bautista. In the 1984, you've got Fade, Fade Rautha, who's played by Sting. And so there were these two nephews of the Baron, and they had very different sort of styles in how they were going to approach things. And so I'll be curious to see if they bring in the character of Fade Rautha or if they try and combine those two into one with uh, with the character of Raban. I'll be curious to see what happens there. There's no sure. mention whatsoever of the princess Irulan other than in passing when uh, Paul and Jessica are with uh, Liet Kynes and he kind of makes his little mention to her about, hey, he doesn't have any sons. Uh, maybe I could be the emperor. And, you know, Princess Irulan plays a little bit more part. Again, in the initial movie, uh, she's the one who starts the narration of the 1984 Dune as opposed to uh, Zendaya or Shani, her character here, kind of starts the narration of this version. So I'll be curious to see how much of these things they're going to bring back in. One of the things that I did think they did a good job of setting up not so much important for Dune, but becomes so much more important as the series goes along, is that relationship between Paul and between Duncan Idaho, who's played by Jason Momoa. Because uh-huh. Duncan's character is incredibly important as the series goes series goes on, because he keeps getting brought back to life through again, there's all these weird things and it starts to get more more science fiction as it goes and you've got the Benny Jesuit and you've got the Benny Tlalax and the clone people basically and, and bring them back to life. And, and so I was going to say he got, he got murked. Like he did a good job taking out those Sadaukar 
And like this was a thing that was really glossed over in the film, but I know at least from reading, you know, articles or Wikipedia or whatever, one of the reasons why the emperor wanted Atreides stopped was because Atreides' warriors were too good, right? Wasn't that the thing? Is that like... Yes, because of, again, and it briefly mentions it when they're on the planet Sardokar with uh, Piter, um, D- the DeVries, who's the Mentat for House Harkonnen. You know, he says something about how, well, they've got Gurney, Halick, and Duncan, Idaho. So the idea that Gurney and Duncan were training the Atreides troops is why they were the best troops in the galaxy. And of course, the Sardaukai guy takes offense at that, but, you know, Piter just kind of looks at him and he's like, that's the truth. Suck it up. Because they were such excellent warriors. I mean, and to be fair, they were, they, they were, you know, ambushed and in the middle of the night, and they held their own against the combined forces of Harkonnen and the Sardaukar for a, a, a fair amount of time until they got murked. Yeah. And so again, it will be interesting. I thought they did that nicely, because you can definitely see even in that very first scene when you mentioned earlier, Duncan comes in and lands and gets out of his ship. And there's genuine affection between him and Paul. And I thought that both those actors played that relationship well. And this not father-son relationship, but almost kind of like a big brother sort of yeah, you know, caring I for agree. him and everything. And, and, and that's an important thing, again, because of how it plays out, at least in the rest of the story. And who knows if they're ever going to make more than just the first book into a movie. I kind of hope they don't because I kind of think they should just leave it alone. But the importance of that relationship between Duncan and Paul as the rest of the series goes on is enough of a thing that I thought it was really good the way they at least established a strong relationship between those two characters. Even though Duncan, yeah, I mean, he takes out, what, a dozen Sardaukar before he gets killed, but ultimately, you know. I mean, at that one point, you think he's dead, and then he pops back up, and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was a good scene. Like, I, I was definitely into it. I was I was all there for that scene. Well, and, you know, M- Momoa excels at scenes like that. There's a reason why he's cast as, you know, big, brooding action heroes, because that's what he does well. Yeah. Like, Bautista was the same way, which is why I was like, yo, when's, when's Dave going to pull out the swords? Come on. Yeah. I do have a question for you. What... So what is the deal, like, uh, from what I could infer, I just want maybe confirmation more than question. So from what I could infer from the film and what little other knowledge I have, Uh everyone has, like, these personal shields that they wear. And, like, the reason why they use blades is because they're kinetic shields, kind of like how, you know, that, that weird mixture of, like baking soda and water if you hit it really hard is solid but if you yep. put your hand in it you squ- you squish right through it is that kind of how the shields work where like if it's like a bullet or something coming fast at it it doesn't make it through the shields but the like slower deliberate uh violence is what makes it through the shields is that how it works is that why it would change the colors like the red was it's going through the shield and the blue was the shield was deflecting it Exactly. And that's exactly what it is, is there. Everybody has their personal kinetic shield. And you could see that when Arakeen is being attacked by the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar, the kind of missiles, the cluster missiles that it would fire, those were always towards groups of people. And when they were dropping those bombs on the big ships, you'd see the bomb would like come down slowly and sort of hit the top of the shield and then just like sink through it slowly until it hit the ship and it's the same thing is that for the most part projectile weapons not useful 
you see Duke Leto gets that dart in his back and it goes fast until it hits the shield and then it persists and pushes through because it's got some type of energy behind it to get it to push it just keeps that spinning slowly. yeah but that's why they're not using you know ballistic weapons they're using you know blades and, and things like that because of those kinetic shields that they have and i don't know why he came up with that but it looks cool i mean also it just makes for a more interesting it makes for a more interesting scene at least visually like i don't know why you make that choice in a book but in a film it makes for yeah, a far more really interesting does. and kinetic uh, action sequence i think I don't know. Is there anything else in particular that you want to mention or um, kind of thoughts so we can wrap up? Mostly just that I'm excited. I'm excited for part two. And like, I enjoyed it enough that the minute I finished watching it, I hopped online and bought myself a trade paperback of the first Dune book. Excellent. It showed up to, it showed up today. I'm throwing it in my bag to take to work tomorrow on the slow times. And, uh, Gonna gonna try Dune out and see if I can get get into it. Excellent. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, it did the same thing for me in that I watched it and I thought, I need to read this again. You know, it's been a few years since I've read it. I need to read it again, and I'll probably read at least a couple of the others. I don't know if I'll read all six of them, but you know, it definitely piqued my interest to go between now and you know October of 2023. I'm gonna want more Dune. I should go back and reread these. Yeah, I I enjoyed myself. I really enjoyed myself. I'm glad you suggested it, and I'm glad I saw it. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because you're much more of an educated movie watcher than I am. I'm kind of one of those people who, and, and in fact, I'll be honest, if I didn't have such an affection for the source material, I don't know if I would have chosen to watch this movie because I'll be honest with you, I'm at a point in my life right now that I think a lot of us are in, but in particular working in healthcare during this last two years of this pandemic has been an absolute nightmare. And so when it comes to my entertainment, yeah, I need it generally to be something where I just unplug my brain, open my eyes and just let it hit me. And this is not that. You can do that, but this is, like you said, no. it is a much slower, it is more thoughtful. And while, yes, it is this big science fiction movie that is sweeping in scope and quite epic, it does have some big action moments. The parts of this movie that matter most are the quiet moments. They're the interactions between one or two or three people. Yep. They're not the big battles. They're not the big spectacles. And it does ask you to really get a little invested in these characters because like, wh why should we care that the Bene Gesserit for 10,000 years have been selectively breeding humanity? That sounds weird, but we care because that's something that Paul's going to have to deal with. And they do a good job of making you care about him. And so, you know, not something that would yep. normally have really kind of hit for me, but it really did. I thought it was great. I loved it. Uh, it, it's been just as enjoyable to go back and watch multiple times. And like you, I'm really excited to see part two and I'm definitely excited to go back and reread the books. Unfortunately, right now I decided that it was time to work on the wheel of time because I just finished watching the, well, I just finished watching the Amazon series, you know, the first season and 
enjoyed oh, it. buddy. <laughs> I don't know. I enjoyed it enough that I was like, maybe I should those try books those books are again. so bad. I read up to book nine way back when they were coming out, and I never finished it. And there's the part of me that's like, but Brandon Sanderson wrote the last three books, and I have no hesitation in saying that Brandon yeah. Sanderson right now is my very favorite fantasy author. And so, I don't know. I'm going to try and make it through all 15 of those. I know a lot of people who love... I know a lot of people who love Brando Sandoz stuff. I've never read any of it. I don't know that I will. You know, those, uh, I, I won't lie. When I got that Dune paperback and I was like, yo, this is a big book. I don't usually read them this long these days. <laughs> I mean, you, you're in academia long enough. You read enough stuff that you're like, I don't know that I need to devote a thousand pages to anything anymore. <laughs> um, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, but I'm certainly not going to do it 15 times for, a. Uh, Robert Jordan, because I, I fell off those much earlier. I think I fell off those in book three or four. When, once they started resurrecting the 13 bad dudes of which like seven had been killed, but then you were like, oh, these books are selling too well. So he needs to bring them back so that he can kill them again in book eight. That's when I was like, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah. Like I say, I had a lot of problems with them, but I'm, I'm telling myself that I, uh, that I can get through them this time. We'll see if it happens. But like I say, I got 15 okay. books to get through from Wheel of Time before I can even think about hitting Dune. So I got some time to get through them. I'm just saying, I I have been reading A Bride's Story, and I can read one of those a day. And those <laughs> are great. It's the best comic I've maybe ever read. But uh, it doesn't take me, it's not, you know, 18th, thousand pages or something like that the wheel of time is gonna be well and see i was on vacation we were on vacation last year and i finally had some time to sit down and read and so i finally got around to sitting down and reading the fourth uh, book in the stormlight archive by brandon sanderson and that fourth book um, rhythm of war i think it's like 1200 pages long and uh, i was able to get through and I really enjoyed it, but mostly I think because I was on vacation and I could just sit and read because it was a lot of, it was a lot to read. That's a lot of, it's a lot of pages and a lot of a commitment. You know, what's great. 180 page manga <laughs> real goes down real smooth. I'm going to have to take your word for it. That's one of those things. I, you'll get me into something. Okay. All right. You just wait. I'm going to make you read. I'm going to make you read some Japanese comic sometime during this podcast, and hopefully you will really like it. I'm actually really looking forward to it because I do want to have sort of my, shall we say, horizons expanded by this. So, um, yeah, I we'll see. Again, I thought it was a great movie from a, a great, if somewhat troubled, series. It's got a lot of baggage on Dune and a lot of baggage in pulling off this movie. And I think almost more than anything in a similar way to when I walked out of the fellowship of the ring the first time and thought to myself, I think that's about as good a version of that book you could do in terms of turning it into a movie. I finished this and I thought, I think you'd be really hard pressed to do a better job of adapting part of this book into a movie that was enjoyable. And not just for people like me who are deep into the idea of Dune, but I've watched it with a number of people who have absolutely no relationship whatsoever, no idea what Dune was, 
and enjoyed the movie enough that, I mean, my wife, she actually went and grabbed my hardback, my hardback version of Dune and pulled it up to start reading it after watching the movie because it interested her as well. And I think that that says a lot. Nice. Well, my closing words would just be, if you liked this, go watch Arrival. Uh, and if you didn't like it, go watch Arrival anyway, because it freaking slaps. It's a good movie. I'll definitely watch it. That I will I will commit to watching Arrival. So That's afternoon. You're good. It's great. Perfect. Well, thanks for taking this time to chat with me. It was good to hear your thoughts on this, and we appreciate everybody who's given us a chance and listening to this. Please subscribe. We'll make sure that this is coming out about every two weeks, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting next time. And again, thanks again to everybody for listening. Yeah, have a great evening. I guess it's not evening for you when you're listening. It is for me when I'm recording. But uh, have a great time in your life. (laughs) Whatever time it might be when you choose to listen. Exactly.